The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week is every week we are making every effort to give you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And it's Q&A week here on Real Life Real Estate, but it's kind of a strange Q&A week because it's just George and me sitting in the studio, the cold studio, by the way, George. I don't know what's up with that. Feels like the air conditioning's on in here. And uh, going to invest in a fire pit. <laughs> that would be awesome. I'm pretty sure it would set off those sprinklers in the ceiling, but... I think it would it would feel really good to do that, but uh, we're we're pre-recording some programs today because of my travel schedule, and we don't know what's going to happen with COVID shutdowns and whatnot. And so I put out a call this morning for your biggest real estate questions on our Facebook page, which is at Ari Goddess. If you happen to. Uh, be a Facebook user and um, got, just asked, you know, like, what do you what do you really want to know that I can answer on a Q&A show that's not live? So we won't be taking calls today. We won't be taking live emails today, but we've got a whole bunch of really good relevant questions here uh, that lists, hopefully the folks who posted them are, are listening to the show <laughs> when it airs. Now, listen, you can always send in questions to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V, like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. And what happens is I've got this little inbox in my email and it goes over there. And then I look at them on Wednesdays. So if your question is, I have to close a deal tomorrow and I don't know where to get the money, you probably don't want to use that method of communication because I will see it the following Wednesday. I will not see it the day you send it. But, um, and that's not, not, not something I'm sure we could, we I'm completely sure we could talk through on the radio anyway. But uh, anytime you just, you're thinking of, you think about real estate, you have a random question and you kind of like to see an answer to it, go ahead and send it to askvina at gmail.com and we'll get to it during a and a show. But today we're working off the Facebook questions at facebook.com slash art goddess. And our first question is from Michelle. And this is interesting because I've, I've actually had this question put to me in real life three times in the last three weeks. Just, just coincidentally, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies that are cashing people out of their retirement funds right now. They're saying, they're saying, well, you could, this company that you worked for 10 years ago and you've got this retirement money coming, we could go ahead and make you payments like we thought we were going to, but we'll give you this smaller amount in cash if you'll take it right now. 
And I'm sure that's financial planning on the part of the companies. And I'm also seeing a lot of investors doing refinances right now because interest rates are so low and they're finding themselves in possession of a bunch of cash thanks to refinances. So Michelle's question is, if you came into a large sum of money, say in the $200,000 range, what strategies would you use to put it to best use in generating ongoing cash flow? And the answer, as is the answer to all great real estate questions, is it depends. It depends on which strategies you know, which ones you're comfortable with, um, how quickly you're trying to turn the money over. Like some people really like to put their money out for six months and then have it come back and then put it out again and then have it come back. That's that's not my favorite way of doing things because when it comes back, I have to find another place to put it. And if I can't find a good quality place to put it, it might be a few months before I am able to find an opportunity that I like for that money and it sits in the bank account and I'd like to say it makes... 1% interest, but the reality is they charge me $15 every month to have the bank account. So like it's less than 0% interest while it's sitting there. So my sort of preference is put it someplace where it can generate probably a lower rate of return. I mean, people, the, the reason hard money loans that are, that are three, four, five, six months generate so much interest, the reason they have double digit often rate of returns, 10%, or more is because the money's not working for very long. And and if I if I think I'm loaning it out for six months and the project is done and I'm paid off in four and it takes me two more months to find the next opportunity and that happens twice in one year, I didn't actually get 10%. I got 10% twice for four months, but then I had four months where nothing was happening with the money at all and it averaged out to 8%. I'd really just put it out at eight and say, keep, keep paying me, you know, like, like pay me for five years, pay me for 10 years, pay me for as long as the deal goes on. So there's some, there's obviously some personal considerations in here. And then the other thing that often comes into play when having these discussions with people is how old are you? Because if you're, you know, 35 and you can afford to really risk some of that money for a higher return and you've got lots and lots of energy to go out and dig up opportunities, I, I might say, well, listen, if you know about notes, if you know about like defaulted notes, semi-performing notes, things like that, then the probably the way to generate the highest return, but also it could it carries the highest risk is go buy it, go out and buy something like an existing semi-performing or defaulted note only if you know how to really, really evaluate the chances that it will re-perform and the value of the property underlying it. Because, I mean, some of those things carry 16, 18% interest rates. You wouldn't want to do that if you were 70 years old and just came into $200,000 because you need that $200,000 to consistently perform for the rest of your life. You don't have the, the time typically to make it back if you lose any part of it. Another option, of course, is go out and buy a rental property that you really like and just pay cash for it. That's not the most efficient use of $200,000. Like I could, I could pull out a spreadsheet and prove to you that if you were using that money to buy rentals, you would be better off in both the short term of what's your return on investment 
and the long term of what do you have 20 years from now when the properties are deleveraged by saying take that $200,000 and turn it into five rentals that you put 40000 a piece down on. And yes, that means you're going to have a mortgage payment on those five rentals for 15, 20, 30 years, depending on how long the mortgage is. And therefore, your cash flow is going to be less than it would be on each property than it would be if you just plopped $200,000 down and paid cash. But it probably, if you add the the five properties together, add the cash flow of the five properties together, the total cash flow will be more than you would get with that $200,000 house that you paid cash for, even though you have mortgage payments. And in 20 years, your picture with the five houses is going to look much, much better than your picture with the one house. If you have one house, then it, let's say it doubles in value in the next 20 years. That's great. But your five houses would have doubled in value too. So significantly more equity uh, if you look up the road. So it it's kind of up to you, but it's I think it's going to come down to if you're in the real estate world, are you going to invest it in notes? Are you going to invest it in private loans to other people, which is effectively notes, just ones that you create yourself? Or are you going to invest it in some sort of long-term rental situation if what you are looking for is generating cash flow? The last option, of course, is use it to pay off some existing rentals. But if you were going to do that, you'd need to ask yourself, is it better to pay off my existing ones or is it better to buy a new one for cash? And if you're looking at that, please pay off the worst loans first. Please pay off the ones at higher interest rates with worse terms first. So hope that gave you some options, Michelle. You're listening to Q&A Day here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's Q&A day here on Real Life Real Estate, but it's a little bit of an odd one because all the questions were sent in ahead of time because this is a pre-recorded program and I'm just working my way through the questions that listeners on Facebook uh, posted in in response to my request for questions for today's pre-recorded Q&A show. Uh, this question is from David, who I believe is up in the Tiffin, Ohio area, if I remember David's previous questions. Uh, his question is, what are the advantages and disadvantages of wholetailing? Well, before I answer that, I think better we better explain what wholetailing is. And uh, that's one of those uh, jargony made up words that it actually means different things to different people like I always have to ask people when they say I, I wholetail houses I just have to say okay what are what specifically are you doing because it either means to them that they are buying houses doing some of the important major work to them but not all of the work and then selling them to investors at a higher price than they could have gotten in a wholesale deal or it means buying a property that's not too bad doing some basic like cleanup and painting work and then putting it on the market for a homeowner to buy which is a strategy that is a hot market strategy we've been talking a lot lately about strategies that work really well in hot markets that are going to die on the vine in a cold market 
In a cold market where there are fewer buyers and more inventory, buyers get so super picky. I can trace the, the um, I'm not going to call it a fad, the practice of putting granite countertops into starter homes to around 2010, 2011, when the market was really in the doldrums and there was a ton of stuff available for sale and there just weren't that many buyers who could qualify or were interested in buying them. And the thing came to be put granite countertops in everything because that's a, that's a wow factor that, you know, the guy next door who's trying to sell the house he's lived in for 10 years and yes, he's got it cleaned up and painted and it looks good and it smells good but you want your house to sell first and for more money put it a granite countertop like we never saw granite countertops in starter homes prior to the so the real estate bubble it was it was all linoleum countertops or maybe if you wanted to get fancy it was tile so in cold markets sellers or buyers are not looking for something that needs work they're looking for something that is ready for them to move into or if it doesn't need work it's like super cosmetic right like I don't like this carpet color I'll probably replace the carpet after I move in or gosh the the vanity's pink and I don't like that but yeah I can go down to the hardware store and buy a nice new vanity for 170 bucks it's not a big deal in a super hot market a whole tailing in the sense of well we have a we have a 10 year old furnace here and we have a 10-year-old roof, and we have a uh, problem with the plumbing, which we will fix before we put it on the market, because that's too much for a home buyer to handle. And we'll just, you know, paint it up some nice color, and we'll leave the kitchen, because it's got a granite countertop, and maybe just polish it up. That That's not going to work as well when the market is cold. So... Pros and cons. The question was, what are the pros and cons of wholetailing? And I'm, I'm going to assume we're going down this path of closing the property, doing a little bit of work and selling it to a homeowner. The biggest pro, of course, is that as compared to wholesaling, where your customer is 100% always, all of the time, another investor, homeowners are willing to pay a lot more for that exact same house in that exact same condition. And the reason is... Their goal is different. A homeowner doesn't need to buy a house at a price where they can then make money of uh, fixing it up and selling it or make money renting it. They are 100% looking at it for personal use value. So the, the, the investor's goal is always buy a property as cheaply as possible because that's what affects my return on investment. If I rent it, that's what affects whether I can make any money by putting a bunch of work into it and selling it. From the home buyer's point of view, they're just trying not to overpay. That's why they get real estate agents involved is to tell them, this is what other stuff in this neighborhood has sold for. This house isn't in quite as good a shape as some of these other ones that have sold, so it's worth a little bit less. You you can't go wrong by paying whatever the price is. In Cincinnati, maybe $120,000. In LA, maybe $450,000. I don't know what what the number on any particular house is. So that is far and away the big, biggest advantage to wholetailing. Uh, there are some there are some disadvantages, and then there are some just practical problems that can crop up in a wholetail deal. The disadvantages are you gotta be able to find the money to buy the property and to do whatever 
work you might be thinking about doing it. I mean, at, at, at bare minimum, if you're going to wholetail a property, it's got to be clean and smell good. It, it cannot be full of the last owner's stuff. It cannot have grime on the walls. It cannot smell like cat. Cannot smell like mold. It cannot smell like body odor. Like it's homeowners have a very hard time overlooking that sort of thing. You may end up doing a little more to it than that. Typically, I wouldn't try and wholetail a deal if the roof leaked or if if there's any major system that is clearly that has clearly failed. I would not try to wholetail it. So coming up with the money is one issue for some people. Uh, there are quirks to the process of the buyer getting financing that could come into play. Um, FHA, to a lesser extent, Fannie Mae and VA, if they are feeling insecure about the mortgage business, they, they don't they don't feel great about the prospects of continued payment from many of their uh, buyers or their their borrowers will put rules into place that say things like you can't resell a property within six months of the time that you bought it for more than a certain percentage over what you paid for it. So you know you paid a hundred thousand in July, you can't sell it in August for one hundred and fifty thousand. Those rules kind of come and go, but. FHA is particularly known for a holding period. They they just they don't want to insure loans if they think there's been some sort of a fraudulent thing going on here and they don't get that the reason you were able to get the property for 100,000 was because the owner had died and they there were 10 squabbling heirs who just were sick of each other and didn't want to do anything to the property including clean it out and they just took the first offer that they got, right? They don't that that doesn't play into the thinking that usually if you can prove a certain level of repairs and if two appraisals come two separate independent appraisals come back confirming the value you don't have any trouble selling the property but i would expect over the course of the next year for some of those rules to come back into play in a much more strict way so it's possible you get the property you fix it and now you find yourself unable to sell it to an an owner or buyer who is getting financing, which most homeowners are like ninety five percent, ninety nine percent of homeowners get financing, unless they are working with a portfolio lender or unless you can jump through some hoops about two appraisals, proving why the value increased, all of that sort of thing. So what you're what you're weighing here when you're thinking I've got a deal, do I wholesale it or do I wholetail it? is what are my resources for being able to get it closed, whatever work is needs to get done, done, and get it back on the market? What is the real, what is the real increase in profitability that I'm going to get by doing this? Because remember, best way to sell a property to a homeowner is get an agent and put it in the MLS. That's where you're going to get the best price fastest. But now you're looking at a 6% commission and you're also looking at homeowners who, unlike investors, will often ask you to pay for some of their finance costs, some of their points, some of the things that 
you don't expect to pay when you sell to an investor. And almost all homeowners are going to get an inspection, and the inspection is going to come back and say, well, this furnace is 10 years old. I might only have another 5 or 10 years worth of life left in it. And then the homeowner either gets scared and backs out or says, we want a new furnace. Or So there's some there's some hassle factor there. If the difference in what you could make as you calculated the realities of let me wholesale it to an investor versus let me sell it to a homeowner was going to land at like three or $4,000, it's probably not worth it. I mean, maybe, maybe it is to you, but would you rather have the, the, the less money right now or would you have rather have the more money, but it might take you, if everything goes great, it might take 45 to 60 days to get it because of the loan process. So do I have super strong feelings about whether other people do that either way? Not really. Do I sometimes wholesale properties? Yes, I do. Because if the property just doesn't need that much to be livable, the difference might not be three or $4,000. It might be ten or $15,000. So absolutely. Am I going to wait 45 days to get my ten or $15,000? Sure. I absolutely will. But uh, hopefully that gave you sort of a general pros and cons list, David, and I appreciate your question. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's Q&A day here on Real Life Real Estate, and all the questions today have come from our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Ari Goddess. Uh, if you want to listen to previous Q&A shows going back years and years and years, you can go to our uh, podcast site at realliferealestate.com and just type in Q&A there at the front of the search bar. And uh, if you want to be on the list so that every week you get a notification about what show is coming up and especially Q&A shows, which are normally live, uh, there's a little form you can fill out there. Just say yes in the emails. Let me know. Let me know what's up. Remind me to listen to the show every week and we will do that. Uh, next question up from Facebook. This is from Brad. Brad says, how do you know or how do you find out who to contact on a probate deal? So the question here is, we have a homeowner who has passed away and or maybe it's a maybe it's a rental property owner and you know that the passing has happened, but you don't know who's responsible for selling the property because that's the that's the thing you're looking for is who whose decision making process is it when if how much to sell for and the answer to that question is that person is either going to be an administrator or an executor or in some parts of the some parts of the country the uh the administrators are called something else the or the executors are called something else like in Pennsylvania they're called surrogates it goes to a surrogate court instead of a probate court and question number 1 is has an estate even been opened for that person because i've i've met um actually it's read an article in one of the biggest Forbes or something saying that the real estate market had gotten so hot that homeowners, like people who wanted to buy a house to live in were searching the obituaries for people who, who died and might have a house. 
And I mean, A, the fact that somebody has died doesn't mean they have a house. And B, the fact that somebody died and has a house doesn't mean that it's for sale. Because if they have a surviving spouse, they probably have a survivorship deed with that spouse that automatically, I mean, there's one thing required to do this. But if, if you do that one thing, which is present a death certificate to the court, the, the house now 100% belongs to the spouse, which one assumes, you know, for at least for the time being, they're probably going to want to stay there and not sell the house. If neither of those things has happened, if there was, you know, no pro, there wasn't an absence of property or there wasn't a survivorship deed, then in order for the people who would be entitled to inherit the house to be able to legally sell it, they have to open probate on the decedent. So they have to go, they have to go down to court and they have to file a case that says, uh, George died. Sorry, George, you were in the room. So you're the, you're the victim here. George died. Uh, he had a house. Um, he, in his will, he said he wanted to leave it to his kids. So now we need the court to go through a process to actually make that happen. And one of the things that the court does in that process is appoint an executor. That's usually somebody named in the will, or if there's no will or no one named in the will, appoint an administrator who is then that person in charge that I was talking about, the one who can make these decisions, who can sign a contract to sell you the house. So what you're looking for here, assuming that probate has been opened, is who is the administrator or executor. In many probate courts and in many wills, the address and sometimes the phone number of the executor is published along with the probate letters, with the probate information, and here's why. Because you're thinking, man, I don't want to, be, want to be the executor and have my name, like, out, or my phone number out in the public record. Probate is not what you might think it is. It is not a way of getting stuff to heirs. It's a way of making sure creditors are satisfied before the stuff goes to the heirs. Because there could very well be a mortgage against this house. There could be a credit card debt. There could be Medicare debt. There could be IRS liens. There could be any number of things that the person who died owes to people. And the, the, the real purpose of probate court is to make sure that those people get paid off or in some way satisfied before the heirs start coming in and, you know, living in the house and selling the house and all of that sort of thing. So the reason that contact information for executors is pretty easy to get your hands on is because if I had a debt, if the if the if George here owed me a hundred thousand dollars and I had a piece of paper that said that but it wasn't recorded anywhere, George is laughing his head off at the idea that he could owe somebody a hundred thousand dollars. Oh, it's easy to owe people a hundred thousand dollars. It's just not that easy to pay them when you do owe them a hundred thousand dollars. Um. I know that that piece of paper isn't recorded anywhere and I heard George died. I'm going to be like, I need to talk to his executor because they don't know. <laughs> they don't know that this $100,000 debt exists. Um, also, occasionally when we're working with probate cases, we discover intricate family situations. I might, in fact, be George's love child. And feel like I am in t that would be a little difficult given our relative ages, but um, you you'd be amazed at how many times I've seen this that that it turns out there was another family 
over here that family B didn't know about. And there's kids that are actually entitled to part of the estate. And I'm going to want to call the executor and say, hey, we need to get a DNA test because I'm your half sibling. And uh, I think I'm entitled to some of George's estate here. So that's why that's why it's pretty easy to track down. If it doesn't happen to be uh, in in the will, which is public record, if it's submitted to the court, um, then you can find out who the person is and just skip trace them like you would skip trace any owner. But the the thing is, it's important to get to the executor, administrator, surrogate, whatever they call them, where you are, because those are the folks who have been given power by the will to make the sale of the property. Contacting random heirs doesn't, I mean, you can have a conversation, you can find out what the situation is, they want to keep the house, but that is not the person who can make the decision unless they happen to have been appointed the administrator, executor, etc. Okay, so let's find another question that will be quick to answer before we have another break. So Colleen asks... If you own a personal home and turn it into a rental, how long does it need to stay a rental until you could do a 1031 exchange into another investment property? So what's interesting about that question, Colleen, and please confirm everything I'm about to say with your CPA or attorney who is familiar with tax law. As long as you have lived in your personal property for two of the last five years, you can actually sell it at what turns out to be a very large profit. It's over, I know the profit can be over $200,000 if you're single and not pay taxes on that profit because it was your personal home. It's section 131 of the Internal Revenue Code, I think, that says that. And if you're married and it's both of your homes, the number's even bigger. It's like 200000 if you're single and three hundred. dollars That's a moving target, so... I'm not, and I tend to stay in my personal homes forever and then turn them into rental properties. So I haven't actually used Section 131 so far. So in theory, let's say you turned it into a rental today and you sold it 23 months from now and you you have lived there for three years already. You have still lived in the property for two or for three of the last five years, right? So you're good. You can sell it, even though it was turned into a rental, and you will have to recapture your depreciation, which will be minor, because you only had it as a rental for two years, and just take the money and buy a, buy an investment property, do whatever you want with it. There's no tax. I can almost promise you that when you consult with that CPA or attorney, they're going to tell you that if you go past that date, so now it's month 25 and you decide to sell it, or it's month 125 after you moved out and you try and sell it at that point it is a rental and you can do a 1031 exchange so you've got this one window where you could sell it without having to do an exchange and not be taxed on it and you have this once that window is done i mean it's been a rental for over a year then so that would follow the rules that it was an investment property and you could do a 1031 exchange on it so Hope that helped, Colleen. Um, We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got some more questions from listeners here at Question Answer Week. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Q&A Day on Real Life Real Estate Investing. This is a pre-recorded Q&A. If you do have questions, go ahead and send them to askavina.com. 
askvina at gmail.com. Try to cut that whole important piece out. Askvina at gmail.com. And we'll get to them on another Q&A day or whenever it uh, pops up as a topic here on Real Life Real Estate. While you're doing that, it would be great if you would send in um, topic requests. If there's something special you would like to hear a whole show about or a particular presenter that you would like to hear a whole show wish with, I would love to hear that at askvina at gmail.com as well. Got two owner financing type questions right in a row here. And it's interesting because they're kind of taking opposite tacks of uh, approaching owner financing. The first one is from Roberto. He says, most sellers have no idea what creative financing is. How do you educate the seller so that they can see the benefits of selling the property on terms instead of cash? Well, the first thing that I will say, Roberto, is I never use the term creative financing when I'm talking to a seller because they absolutely don't know what that means. And there's something about that term that sounds vaguely suspicious. And I, I don't know if that's because it sounds like creative bookkeeping or something like that. But, you know, creative is not, people want conservative when they're selling their houses. They don't want creative when they're selling their properties. There are also so many different forms of it. I You could go, you could go at a seller with, let me take over your loan. Let's do a wrap mortgage, sell it to me on a contract for deed. Let me lease option it. Um, just, just your house is paid off, just take payments, you be the bank. So the first part of successful creative finance negotiation is find out what their whole situation is. And when I say whole situation, I mean, why are they selling? Do they have some immediate use for the money? If they if they were to sell for cash, do they already know like, I have to take this money and put it toward medical bills, or I have to take this money and uh, buy a property in Florida that I already have my eyes on, and I know exactly how much cash I'm going to need to do that. Because sometimes creative financing really isn't the best thing for the seller, given given their situation. Not It's not just about the financing itself. It's about, like, what are you doing next? The other piece of information that you need to have before you approach any discussion about creative finance is, uh, is there or is there not already financing on the property in what amount, at what interest rate, with what payments, for how many years remaining, what do those payments consist of? So if they say, well, my payment's $1,657 a month, well, does that include taxes and insurance or is it just the base payment? And if it does include taxes and or insurance, is that number going to change if you took over the loan? Because usually if I buy a property subject to the existing loan, I find that the insurance part of that goes up because I'm a real estate investor and insurance costs me more than it costs homeowners. So get just, just approach it as a discussion. I, I'm just trying to see what your whole story is here so that I can figure out a couple of good ways that we might do this. And um, I don't really know that until I really understand what's happening with you. And then when you see the whole picture, that will probably cut out a couple of types of creative finance that are in your head. 
if the if the property does not have a mortgage, you're not going to do subject two, right? You can cross that off the list. You're not going to do a wraparound mortgage. You can cross that off the list. On the other hand, if it does have a mortgage, you're probably not going to do zero interest seller financing since the mortgage is probably not zero interest. So start there. And then when you get to the point of saying, okay, so I've got a, I've got a potential way to do this that is going to help you, Mr. Seller, in what way? Like you you have to be able to answer that question yourself first. Um, Usually the answer is, I can just straight up give you more for your house. If I don't have to go dig up $160,000 of my own and pay closing costs and appraisals and points and EPA endorsements and all that stuff, uh, I can just give you the money that I would have spent on doing all of that. So it's more money. I would like to make a suggestion that I can do cash, but I'm not sure the price is going to make you happy. Or I can do this other thing and I can, I can sit down with you and explain it to you and see if you like it. Cause I think it, I think it, I think you might like it cause there's more money involved. Um, and then just approach them with the cash offer. If there is one to be made and the creative finance offer and don't put, don't put terms on it. Don't say subject to, don't say, uh, most people are vaguely familiar with the idea of a contract for deed or land contract. So you could maybe say that, um, don't say be the bank that scares sellers because they somehow picture that they're going to have to bring money to the closing in some way, which they're not just explain how it works. What I want to do is I want to take over your loan. We'll go to a closing. I will be the owner at the end of the closing. The attorney will make the deed and all that stuff. After the closing, I will be responsible for all the repairs, the maintenance, the utilities, the taxes, the insurance, and we'll have this agreement that I'm going to write down right now that says I'll make your payments from then on out and then answer any questions they have about that. And if they happen to say, well, what's that called? Do people do that? You say, well, it's usually called buying a property subject to the existing loan, but don't get into the jargon right up front. Don't be like, I want to buy your house subject to, because again, I don't understand that. As a seller, if I don't understand it, it, there must be something wrong with it because my agent didn't tell me about it. And my parents never told me about it. So the benefits just, just before you get to the point of making the offer, go back to the story that the seller told you and say, here's how I see this benefits you given your situation. Okay. And just, just talk like a human being. Okay. The flip side question is from Leslie. She says, is owner financing too risky for the owner, meaning like I'm an investor and now I'm selling a property with owner financing in a time of COVID and foreclosure moratoriums? And the answer is it's a little more risky just because people are still losing their jobs and we don't know what is going to happen in the medium and long term here in the economy. But that means also renting is more risky than it was in, say, January of 2020. From the perspective of what I think you're asking about, which is the foreclosure moratoriums, thus far, they have not applied to privately held mortgages. They've they've applied to Fannie and Freddie, have both kind of voluntarily done a moratorium. FHA and VA have obviously... Um, requested more 
moratoriums be given or demanded that moratoriums be given on the the mortgages let, let me remind you they don't own they only insure those mortgages those are not it's not actually fha and va's mortgages but there other than you I mean you got to look state by state and city by city but other than that there've been no national moratoriums that would say george bought this house from me for $100,000 he's supposed to pay me $1,000 a month and he's not paying me and now I can't foreclose. So from that perspective, yeah, probably not. It's more the risk perspective of can can the borrower actually make the payments and again that same thing's going to apply if you rent that same house. So thank you all for all your questions. Really really good stuff, lots of variety and I appreciate it and We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.